I was just saying I, I'd like to challenge you to find a more beautiful place than this right now. And um, the Lord is certainly good, isn't he? Amen. One thing I've been convicted of a lot recently is how there's only one thing. We'll talk a little bit about this going forward. There's only one thing that you and I deserve. And that's non-existence. It's the only thing you and I deserve. So anything we get is just icing on the cake, isn't it? We're living and breathing right now because of the grace and the love and the death of Jesus Christ. And I've just been convicted recently more and more that we live in serious times. And um, we're called to humbly yet boldly approach the throne of grace. And so we want to do that this morning. Why don't we have another prayer? Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so very much that you have faith. What a humbling thought to realize that you have confidence and you have faith and you believe in us. There is nothing within ourselves that deserves any sort of confidence. Yet, you look upon us, not as we are, but what we can become. So I pray this morning and throughout this weekend that we would taste and see that you are good. And that you have such rich blessings for us if we will only open up our hands to receive them. Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me this morning. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to tell you about a young lady that I've become acquainted with who goes to the University of Maine. I have, since moving to Bangor, started a Bible study on the campus of University of Maine with a number of young people. And this school year, last year we started with just one student who was coming to the Bible study, and then we grew up to two. And this year we have about four or five that attend regularly two of which are non, not Seventh-day Adventists. So I'm praising the Lord for that, that wonderful blessing of being able to minister with these young people. But the first Bible study we had this year, there was a young lady who, who came and she was just pouring out her heart. We're studying the book of John, just going verse by verse. In three or four weeks that we've met, we've only gone through about 12 verses. And I praise the Lord because these young people are excited about the Word and want to share it and want to apply it to their lives. But the first week we were there, this young lady, in all of her sincerity, she revealed to the group, she said this, you know, last year when I was a freshman, I could never leave my dorm room without making sure that I had mascara on. She said that. She said, I was afraid to leave my dorm room and have people see what I look like unless I was painted up with my makeup. And she was saying this, pouring out her heart. She said, you know, God and I had a talk over the summer and he helped me realize that I don't need to worry about that stuff anymore. You see, here was a young lady who was so worried about what other people thought of her, so worried about the impression that she would make that she couldn't stand to be vulnerable and to just let herself come out the way that she is and the way that God created her. 
You know, as she was sharing that and kind of a few other interactions with me, I came to the realization that this young lady is just craving acceptance. She's craving the realization that somebody values her. She's craving the realization that somebody has confidence and believes in her. And it suddenly dawned on me that that is the reality of all of us. If we were to strip back everything, if we were to just lay ourselves bare and open to the world, we would show the world how much we crave that very same thing. I want you to open the pages of your Bibles to the book of Revelation this morning. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 14 to a passage that is kind of our calling card as Seventh-day Adventists. Revelation chapter 14, you probably don't even need to turn there because we have memorized it long ago. But notice what John the Revelator records in that third angel's message. Notice what he says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. You know it, as, as I already said by heart. But John says, here is the patience of the saints. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus. This is the calling card of Seventh-day Adventists. This is our, our great battle cry. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus. The question that we want to grapple with this morning is, how have we done in keeping those things. We, we no doubt say, well, you know, we are very good at keeping the commandments. We, we like to put our chest out and we say, we've done a very good job. The world needs to know that we are commandment keepers. I just was at a funeral yesterday and I, it was for a, a, a woman who had become an Adventist a few years back and the uh, service was heavily attended by non-Adventist Christians. And I noticed that one of the Adventist sisters that was sharing a testimony wanted to make it clear that we as Seventh-day Adventists keep the commandments. You know, most Christians think they keep the commandments too. So simply saying that we keep the commandments is not necessarily going to explicitly get through to them. But we like to be proud of the fact that we keep the commandments of God. But there's something that we need to grapple with, and that's what Ellen White shares here in... Your handout. How many of you have your handout? We're going to be actively looking at this handout. We have a number of quotations. By God's grace, we will go through all of them at some point, and in the same order they are placed in. But if not, that's all right. But notice this first quotation from Ellen White. Notice what she says. The faith of Jesus comprehends more than is what? Generally supposed. The faith of Jesus comprehends more than is generally supposed. Notice what she says. This is now from another section of the same materials. It has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner. It has not occupied the prominent position in which it was revealed to John. 
The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance. The law and the gospel doing what? Going hand in hand. Notice what she says next. This is startling to read a prophet of God saying these next things. I cannot find language to express the subject in its fullness. That's very, that's very baffling to me. That even the prophet was having a hard time coming up with a way to describe this whole issue. But notice what she says. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of, but what? Not understood. The faith of Jesus is talked of, but it is not understood. She says, you know what? We have proclaimed the, ten, the, we have proclaimed the commandments, but we've neglected the faith of Jesus. I'd like to propose to you, however, that we cannot truly proclaim the commandments if we are not also proclaiming the faith of Jesus. We have actually undermined our own ability to proclaim the commandments and to keep the commandments, and we've actually lowered the bar when we just proclaim the commandments without the faith of Jesus. You see, when we proclaim the the commandments without the God-powered faith of Jesus, it's impossible to keep the commandments. When we say, oh yeah, we keep the commandments, we actually show that we're lowering the bar. Because anything that is man-initiated, anything that is man-powered, anything that comes out of my nature, my human sinful nature, is sin. So we actually make the commandments sin when we divorce them from the faith of Jesus. Very, very sobering and very, very startling. But she says, the faith of Jesus has not been understood. So we want to spend a little time this morning looking at the faith of Jesus because Ellen White says that this is a very, very important subject. It needs to come to its prominence as John saw it. And if we are to be God's last day people, if we are to be preparing for translation with Christ our righteousness, we need to understand the law and the gospel. We need to understand both of those things. There are many ideas as to what constitutes the faith of Jesus. I just want to share a couple with you that are commonly presented. Most translations of the Bible, except for the King James and New King James and I think the uh, Young's literal translation of this verse say, faith in Jesus, right? Many of you probably have that translation. And so this is the prevailing belief among many Christians that it's simply I am placing my faith, my trust, my, my confidence in Jesus. And certainly the faith of Jesus entails that to some extent. Another idea as to what constitutes the faith of Jesus that I've heard very frequently is Jesus overcoming faith. This is perhaps what most Seventh-day Adventists, when they hear the faith of Jesus, think is the faith of Jesus. They think the faith that Jesus had to overcome sin and to overcome himself and to overcome the urge to turn away from the cross. And we say that constitutes the faith of Jesus, and so that's the type of faith that you and I need to have. And I say, praise the Lord, that is something that you and I will have to embrace. Because in the end times, and and we're living in those end times, we are going to need to have that faith to overcome self, to surrender to Christ, aren't we? And then there's a third 
understanding, and that is Jesus' faith that he has in you and me. There's the faith in Jesus, there's the overcoming faith of Jesus, and then there's Jesus' faith that he has in you and me. There's only two people I've heard, and since I've, I first discovered this, there's more that I've heard, but there's only two people I heard for a while who ever proposed this idea. One of them was a doctor out in California. The other was Ellen White. So you know the first guy's in good company, right? <laughs> Let's go now to the book of Romans, because we're going to grapple with this from a number of places in Scripture. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, this great great epistle that Paul brings out, the beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. By the way, pastors from northern New England will be following you here this weekend, and for three days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, we'll be studying this book together here. So we petition your prayers to study and grapple with this book. Romans chapter 3. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The Jewish brothers and sisters were blessed with the scriptures. They were the stewards of the wonderful scriptures. Notice what Paul says in verse 3, though. For what if some did not what? believe. Will their unbelief make the faith or the faithfulness of God without effect? As we read this in English, we don't understand the exact tension that Paul is trying to develop here, but when we read the word unbelief, it's the same as no faith. That's in Greek, no faith. And so faith and no faith are the opposites. So so Paul is saying, what if some have no faith? Will that neutralize, will that, will that contradict the faith of God? And he says, what, in verse 4? Certainly not. Heaven forbid. Friends, I want you to understand something. God's faith and his belief in you is not dependent upon your belief in him. Some of us get the idea that I first have to believe, I first have to repent, I first have to have confidence in God for him to now come and approach me. For him to have faith and confidence and belief in me. And Paul says very clearly, as does all of Scripture, that God's faith is not dependent upon our faith. As a matter of fact, God's faith has to necessarily precede our faith. There is no way for you and I to have faith unless we first understand and accept and believe that God has faith in us. What if... Some did not believe, Paul says. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you, capital Y, you, God, may be justified in your words. You know, many of us are concerned about our justification, aren't we? Many of us are worried, oh man, am I unjustified? Have I been forgiven? Have I been, have I been accepted? And God is involved in a great controversy where we should be concerned with his justification. Paul says that you may be justified. God needs to be justified. God needs to be declared righteous. 
that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are what? Judged. Of course, you recognize that this verb judged is in the passive form, meaning God is the one receiving the judgment. It is not God who is going about making the judgment, although the judgment certainly involves that, but primarily it is about God receiving and being judged. And so Paul is praying and hoping, quoting the book of Psalms and David in Psalm 51, God, Paul is hoping and praying that God might overcome and be justified when he is judged. Amen. I was just sharing with a young lady yesterday, grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, She's turned away from the faith. And, you know, she still is involved with it, but she says, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself a Seventh-day Adventist. She said, here are the reasons I don't. And uh, she listed off some of the beliefs and the doctrines that she disagreed with, you know, the investigative judgment, Ellen White, the Sabbath as an end-time issue. There are many Seventh-day Adventists who embrace the Sabbath. They just don't embrace the idea that it's going to be an end-time issue. You realize that, right? But these are the things that she listed off. And so I, I, I wrote a little response to her on Facebook, and I said, you know, the thing that keeps me a Seventh-day Adventist is the beautiful truth of the great controversy thing. Amen. There is no other denomination that has such a beautiful picture of the character of God as the Seventh-day Adventist church. And again, I say that humbly like my father did last night. We have been blessed with this beautiful understanding of God. We have been blessed with this beautiful truth that God is being judged right now. God is on trial. The whole universe is looking on to see if God is who he says he is. What a beautiful truth that is. I was interested to come across in Hebrews chapter 11. Notice what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11 about God being judged. Hebrews chapter 11, notice what he says in verse 11. He or she says, some have proposed it's a female author of Hebrews. I say that kind of um, humorously. But notice what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she did what? Judged him faithful who had promised. Wow! Sarah had judged God to be faithful. Sarah had judged and reckoned and considered God to have faith. And so she received the strength to be able to bear the child because she considered and she judged God to be faithful. Amen. Did you know that the great controversy, I think, will ultimately show at the very end, the great controversy will reveal the fact that God is faithful. That God, as we know from the beginning of the conflict of the ages series to the very end, God is what? Love. That's what this whole thing is all about. It's not about your justification. It's not about your salvation. It's not about your forgiveness. Although we praise the Lord, that's part of it. It's about God's justification. It's about God's vindication. It's about God passing the judgment and being proven faithful, being proven to be love. Wasn't that what Paul says? God's faithfulness will not be made of none effect. 
simply because we don't have faith? Notice this quotation from Ellen White. When I first was turned on to this truth, I was my mind was just absolutely startled. Notice this is from the book Lift Him Up, page 220. Each word, each action is a work for God. Here is faith in God and faith in what? Men. Christ would never have given his life for the human race if he had not faith in the souls for whom he died. You know, for some reason, my whole life until this last year, I never realized that. It was like it just never clicked in. But it's, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Of course Christ had to have faith in us in order for him to die for us because he believed that there was something that could be accomplished in redeeming the human race. So Christ looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, I have faith, I have confidence in you. I believe in you. Notice what she goes on to say. He knew that a large number would respond to the love he had expressed for humanity. Go with me to the book of Job here very quickly because there was something as we were studying with uh, a group of young adults that, that come to our house on Friday nights. We were studying the book of Job for a, a little bit and something jumped out at one of the attendees that I had never noticed before, but she brought it right out and I thought it was a very observant point to make. Notice Job chapter 1, we know this very well. Job chapter 1 verse 6 Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now this book of Job epitomizes the great controversy more than just about any other book in the Bible, doesn't it? It shows us exactly, it pulls back the curtain to help us recognize what's going on. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. It's interesting because that word, that that phrase, walking back and forth, walking back and forth, in Hebrew it's the same exact words that are used in Ezekiel 28 to describe the, the cherubim there, the covering cherub in heaven. And we know, of course, that that is Lucifer, wasn't it? Walking back and forth. In the Old Testament, especially when we see Hebrew phrases that, that are the exact same, we know that there's a connection between the two, especially when they're hardly ever used. So it gives us insight in Ezekiel 28 where it says, you are the covering cherub. Oh, how you, you know that, that passage? So we see that Lucifer, of course, was there at the very beginning in heaven, one of the two covering cherub. And we see him now here, however, kind of going about the same behavior, walking back and forth. So notice what it goes on to say, Then the Lord said to Satan, notice this, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. I believe with all my heart, that God would say the same about you and me. You say, well, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of that. That's not me. Do you think Job felt worthy of such a title? A blameless, upright man? 
I believe that God would say the same thing about you and me. You know why? Because it is through God's word that he creates reality. So he looks at you and he says, you know what? I know that this child is blameless. I know that they walk uprightly. And if we could just kind of kind of eavesdrop on the conversation, we would say, wow, is that, how, is that what God feels about me? Is that what God says about me? Is that the way he looks at me? But Lord, look at me. I'm, I'm just a nobody. If you go through the, the gospel writings, and you were to notice every time somebody was either healed because of their faith, where Jesus says it, or because God marveled at their faith, you would find seven groups of individuals who were some of the greatest misfits in all of Israel. Think about it. Every single person. We don't have time to go through it, I don't think. But every single person or groups of persons would be considered the outcasts and down and outs of society. You think about the woman who had the issue of blood. Think of the, what was it, Syrophoenician woman. Even, even, the, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And Jesus said, your faith has healed your daughter. The, the Roman centurion, who, he was not one of the clean people according to Jewish society. Yet it says that Jesus marveled at his faith. He had not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And just two stories later... Jesus is on the boat in in the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are pleading for their safety and Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. What a contrast between those who were supposed to be the the pictures of faith and those who really were. You say, Well, I'm nobody. Jesus looks at you and he says, You're blameless. You're upright. I believe in you. I have confidence in you. And Job was no more worthy of this acclamation than you and I are. And yet it is through the power, the creative power of God's word that he creates the very thing he declares. And so he says, you know what? You're upright, you're blameless, I believe in you. So when Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, guess what? God's word has to to create that which it declares. And we may not seem like we're that way right now, but if we embrace the picture that God has of us, if we embrace the view, his faith, that very thing will be created in your heart and mind. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered him? What faith God had in Job? We're going to get into it on Sabbath a little more, but notice Satan's response. So Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for nothing? Job's implication is that no, he doesn't fear him for nothing. And God's, the implication that God's answer is yes. Again, we're going to get into this on Sabbath, but friends, do you serve God for nothing or are you doing it to get goodies in return? Or are you doing it because God has put a hedge around you? Does God serve Job for nothing? God says, I have faith. I believe in him. And a whole book was written showing the vindication of God and Job, but more importantly, God. 
Go with me now to the book of Galatians. We want to grapple with something else that Paul has written in Galatians and his epistles. It's interesting. There's a gentleman who is a professor of theology and medicine out at Loma Linda University who has written an article for us for our magazine. I was just reading it. It's going to be in our next issue. I'm excited about it. And he brought out something that I had never considered before. Most of us think of Paul as writing out doctrine, and that's what he's writing about. But did you know, as this this individual brought out, that Paul is an apocalyptic writer? Notice Galatians, notice Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the Greek word for a revelation? The apocalyptus. The apocalypsis. I received this. Is this if you were reading the book of Revelation? That's what John says. A revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is perhaps most concerned about trying to show us the character of God. He's trying to show us the heart of God. He's not necessarily trying to write out a systematic theology of how salvation works, although that's thrown in there. But he's trying to show us the very heart of God. So notice what Paul goes on to write in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15. Notice what he says, We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by what? By works of the law. A man is not justified by works of the law. You and I have perhaps read this a thousand times. We have gone over it over and over again. I'm not justified. I'm not saved. I'm not forgiven. I'm not accepted with God because of anything I do. And no matter how many times we hear that, and no matter how many times we read that, it is hard for us to accept it, isn't it? We, are, we live in a society that is based upon performance. The whole world revolves around us measuring up. The whole world revolves around us living up to expectations. The whole world revolves around us performing our duty in order to receive something in return. And Paul says, no, no, no. We are not justified. We are not declared righteous. We are not made righteous by anything we do. We're not, we're not declared righteous. We're not forgiven. We're not accepted in Jesus because of rule following. Amen. Many of us, as I said, we just can't get that through our heads, though. You know? We live in a Doggy dog world. We live in a world where we're always thinking about the person on our shoulder. I shared this with a number of the young people a few weeks ago when we had our Righteousness by Faith rally in Concord. I, I was just transparent with them as I try to be, and I'm, I'm going to be with you. There are many times where I have a little person on my shoulder. It's not Satan, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's usually one of the most conservative people I know. And I think, what would they think if they knew I was doing this? Isn't that terrible? Maybe you have the same experience. What would that person think if they knew I was doing this? You know, there's only one person, one person whose opinion matters. We know this. There's only one person whose opinion matters. And guess what? He has faith in us. 
He accepts us. He believes in us. That's all that matters. And it's not based upon what we do. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Of course, as we've already discovered, many versions no doubt have this, including the New King James, faith in Jesus Christ. But this... This Greek construct has been parsed and exegeted and broken down over and over and over and over again. And is it faith in Jesus or faith of Jesus? Well, if it was faith in Jesus, it would make it very superlative, very redundant, because he goes on to say, even we who have believed. So there's our believing, but we're justified by Jesus' faith. You know, you and I, are living and breathing right now because of the faith that Jesus has in us. If you remove the faith of Jesus, Adam and Eve would have been lights out for them immediately. And we would never have even existed. We're justified because of the faith that Jesus has in us. We're going to look at it again later on this afternoon, but this is one of my favorite quotations from the pen of Ellen White. To the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. To the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. Never one saint or sinner eats his daily food except as he is nourished by the body and blood of Christ. You and I are living, breathing, standing, sitting, whatever it is, we are living and breathing because of the faith that Jesus had which took him to the cross. Notice this other quotation by Ellen White. I want to thank my good friend Arnett for pointing this out to me back this summer. This is from the book Education, page 80. In every human being, he discerned what? Infinite possibilities. Infinite possibilities. He saw men as they might be. He did what? He saw men as they might be. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the what? Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So God is looking through the eyes of faith and seeing us as we might be. Transfigured by his grace. In the beauty of the Lord our God, Psalm 90, verse 17, looking, notice, looking, Jesus is looking. What does he see? Looking upon them with hope, he inspired hope. You know that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does what? It hopes all things. Or another way that it's put, according to the Greek, love always hopes. You know that God has hopes? He has dreams. He sees within us the fulfillment of those hopes and those dreams. Looking upon them with hope, he inspired hope. Meeting them with confidence, he inspired trust. The title of this little talk here is called The Speed of Trust. I was, I was introduced to that idea from uh, this doctor out in California. He got it from a title of a book by Stephen Covey, the younger one. I've never read it, but I like the, the title. And what that book, the book proposes is that in order to foster a good work environment, 
confidence and trust needs to be present. Have you ever served on a church board? <laughs> are these the are these the cradles of confidence and trust usually? Or are they the cradle of suspicion? I'm sad to say, I, you know, I, I've had a very short ministry, but I woke up to the reality very quickly that most of us don't have trust in one another. Most of us don't believe in one another. We show up every week to church. And we sit down next to the pew and we look at each other with a suspicious eye. What does it say about those who are living in the very end times? They keep the faith of Jesus. And if God can have confidence and trust in me, and there's this much gap... We could be going for eternity trying to separate that gap between where God is and where we are, objectively speaking. If God has that much confidence and faith and he hopes in us, what should that say about us towards our fellow brothers and sisters? We're not going to be a part of that group that is translated if we are constantly suspicious of one another. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you know there are certain there are certain individuals and certain movements within our own congregation that are always looking for a conspiracy, always looking at one another, whether it's in the church or it's in the world, with with a suspicious eye. And God says, No, 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 no. My people will have confidence. Not that they have just this blind trust where they let anybody do anything. But we are defined as those who have confidence because it is out of that confidence that trust is born. Meeting them with confidence, he inspired trust. Revealing in himself man's true ideal, he awakened for its attainment both desire and faith. In his presence, souls despised and fallen realized that they were still men. Wow. And they longed to prove themselves worthy of his regard. Not in some way as to try to attain his favor, but just saying, you know what, God believes in me and I can live up to that. And many a heart that seemed dead to all things holy were awakened new impulses. To many a despairing one, there opened the possibility of a new life. You know, there are so many people in this world who are longing for somebody just to reach down and say, I believe in you. I always thought that that was such a cliche growing up. You know, I see these award ceremonies where you'd have somebody say, you know, my third grade teacher, she believed in me. And you think, oh my goodness, this is like 30 years ago and you're thanking your third grade teacher for believing in you, but it's true, isn't it? It's true. People are waiting for someone to reach down and say, I have confidence in you. Let's do this together. Let's, let's trod this road together, you and me, side by side. Let's do it together. I shared this little illustration a few weeks ago at our Righteousness by Faith rally. It was kind of one of those things I just threw in there, and I was like, well, I don't know if this is going to be appropriate to share, but it was unbelievable how many people came up to me after and said, you know that little illustration you used? That, that really made sense to me. It's about the dentist. Those who were there remember what I shared about the dentist. 
Back when I was living in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, Camille and I found dentist that was a pretty hard-nosed dentist. You'd show up, and he'd peek into your mouth, and he would tell you everything wrong that you were doing. You know? Do you realize? You know you don't floss, right? Well, yeah, I'm pretty aware of that. You know? <laughs> you know? Maybe it's just me, but I think most people are are a little hesitant to go to the dentist to begin with because they know they have been guilty of not measuring up, right? Right? Amen. That's right. That that gives me insight into the human psyche. Most people, and I don't want to say everybody, because some people have gone so far, most people know that they're doing things wrong. That's not what they struggle with. They struggle with the acceptance and love It's not that they just aren't aware of their sinfulness. Now, as I said, that's not true of everyone. Some people have gone so far that they they don't recognize it. And we need to, sometimes a a good warning is deserved. But, you know, I go to the dentist. I don't want to go to the dentist because I know he's just going to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And so when I went to that dentist in New Hampshire, the only thing he would really say to me was what I was doing wrong and what I should be doing better. You know, Both Camille and I, we dreaded going to that dentist. If it's just for the simple fact that we need a new dentist, the Lord moved us to Bangor. And so so we went to Bangor, we moved to Bangor, and I went to the dentist for the first time a few months ago after moving. You know, that dentist, he looked into my mouth and he said, you know what, we have some good teeth to work with here. He said, you have some really good teeth. He says, you know, there's a few problems, but I think we're going to be able to do it. I think we're going to be able to take care of these. You know, I went home, and I flossed. (laughs) And I haven't flossed today, but I've been flossing more than I've ever flossed before in my whole life. There was a stark contrast between someone telling me what I was doing wrong and what I should be doing better and somebody looking into my mouth and saying, we can do something. We can make these teeth work. We can, we can, we can repair the problems. You know, the second dentist, he gave me confidence. He told me, it's going to work. It's a very simple illustration, but it... But it makes sense to me because that second dentist inspired hope and he was able to get me to do the very thing that the first doctor tried profusely to do. And yet he's failed at. What does that say for us, friends? When we're just telling people what they should be doing, we're actually undermining the very thing we're trying to get them to do. Because here's one little secret. Human beings are incapable of achieving righteousness on our own. The law was not given to us to now obey it. It took me a long time to realize that. And we're a Seventh-day Adventist. We're very, very, very deliberate about telling people what they should be doing. You know, we say, if someone can just recognize that the seventh day is the Sabbath, that will get them to keep it. But it's impossible for a person to keep the Sabbath. The only reason we have those commandments is to point out our need for Christ and to show us what the faith-filled life looks like. 
says, I will achieve this by my grace and by my belief and confidence in you. And together we'll walk side by side and this is what your life will look like when you come into surrender and you have faith in my faith in you. That's what Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus. You know, there's a beautiful parable, two parables that Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We read the story and we say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is, is worth our selling everything. It's giving up everything. And it, is it not? We're told that when we get to heaven, we'll say heaven was cheap enough. Amen. Ellen White, in this beautiful passage, she says, what do we give up when we give all? A sin-polluted heart. It's like God has a billion dollars for us and he's willing to trade it in for what we have in our bank account. And I'm willing to bet that none of us has a billion dollars in our bank accounts. If we do, I'd like to talk to you after. <laughs> but God is saying, you know, this is, what I, this is, this is the exchange. I want to give you a billion dollars if you just surrender your sin-polluted heart over to me. And Ellen White says, you know, there are some men who say it's not worth it. She said, I'm ashamed to write it. I'm ashamed to hear it spoken of. That some people would actually say, that's not something I want to be a part of. So heaven is cheap enough. You know, that's not all, because Jesus goes on to say, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a beautiful pearl. That's what it says, right? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a beautiful pearl. Is that what the next parable says? Oh, it's like a merchant. Okay. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. The first parable shows us a picture of man giving up all to attain heaven. The second parable gives us a picture of heaven giving up all to attain man. What a beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. Man has been redeemed and bought with all the riches of heaven. They've been poured out. We'll look at that quote later on this afternoon. But all of heaven has been emptied because it believed and it valued and it had faith in us. There's a lot made about self-esteem, isn't there? Mm. Now the importance of self-esteem. And we tried man-made, we try man-made scenarios and formulas to get people to feel good about themselves, but none of it will last and truly change the heart except for the cross of Calvary. There we see on Calvary our value. One of my favorite people in the world, his name, his name is Dr. Lael Caesar. He was a, a professor of mine at, at Andrews as an undergrad, and he was um, my, my uh, advisor. Now he is an editor for the Avenus Review. And when he, whatever he shares, 
he has seven words that he wants people to remember. I think it's because he is such a brilliant mind that it's hard to follow him. So he says, you know, if I can at least have him take home seven words, I, uh, I think people will be able to get what I'm saying. So I thought about that today because I knew we were going to be wandering around. And I actually have 14 words, okay? <laughs> but they're two different sentences, all right? If you leave this morning without understanding what I've said, I want you to take home this first sentence of seven words and the second sentence of seven words, okay? You're going to write it down. Notice these seven words. I had to write them down. I, I, I thought of this last night about 11.30 as I was in my bed. Notice these seven words. The faith of Jesus is the cross. The faith of Jesus is the cross. Here's the second seven words. The value of a soul is Calvary. The value of a soul is Calvary. Let's go to that quotation. You don't have it there in your handout. One of the most beautiful, powerful passages. Because the faith that Jesus has in us, it's because he sees value in us, doesn't he? So these two ideas have incredible interaction with one another. Notice this well-known passage from Ellen White, Christ's Object Lessons, page 196. The value of a soul, who can estimate? Right? The value of a soul, who can estimate? Would you know its worth? Go to Gethsemane. You know, that chapter in Desire of Ages, Gethsemane, has to be just about one of the greatest chapters ever written. Would you know its worth? Go to Gethsemane. And there watch with Christ through those hours of anguish when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Look upon the Savior uplifted on the cross. Hear that despairing cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look upon the wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. Remember that Christ... What's the next word? Anybody know? My dad mentioned it last night. Remember that Christ risked all. Christ risked Oh, we may give passing thought to that. We may say, well, not really. You know, he was resurrected three days later. But Christ risked all. For our redemption, heaven itself was imperiled. Do you know that the whole universe was imperiled as well? Yeah, you learn a lot from little children's books because... A couple months ago, I was reading Camden. He was sitting on my lap. I was reading a little children's book, you know, the Bible story books in it. The last story, remind me to get back to this right here. The last story in the whole series, what is it, the uh, Bible story books? The last story is about Jabel the shepherd. What a beautiful way to end the series. Of course, his name wasn't really Jabel, but that's what they give him as his name. It's about that shepherd looking for the one lost sheep. And so as I was reading the story to him, it talks about how he brings the hundred sheep and he, he realizes that one is lost. And in Camden's little book, it says that he leaves the 99 in the, in the fold, in the gate. 
And I looked at that. I said, that's not true. Because for the long, as long as I can remember, something always jumped out at me about the story of the lost sheep. If you look in Luke chapter 15, it says that he left the sheep in the wilderness. And so I always wonder, why does Jesus say he left those sheep in the wilderness? And finally, when I saw it on the page that they were in the sheep gate, in the fold, it all of a sudden clicked with me. You know, the 99 represent, according to Ellen White, they represent the unfallen worlds. They represent the universe. It suddenly dawned on me that when Christ came to this earth seeking and dying for the one lost sheep, he left the whole universe in the wilderness and at risk. It's not just God who was at risk. It's not just heaven that was at risk. The whole universe was risked as God sought us and carried out his faith mission on our behalf. What a thought. Notice what Ellen White goes on to say. Remember that Christ risked all. For our redemption, heaven itself was imperiled. At the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner, Christ would have laid down his life, you may estimate the value of a soul. You ever doubt your worth, your value? The way you're going to overcome that is not by looking within yourself and saying, you know what, I'm a smart person, I'm a funny person. I have a lot of talents because someday those are going to fall away from you. We were just talking earlier. Rick and my dad and I, the world is in despair. People who we think should be the the models of self-esteem, the only logical end for them is suicide because they're looking within themselves, trying to find their value and their worth and their accomplishments and their achievements. And when they don't look as pretty, when they can't run as fast, guess what? It's it. It's over. Of course, Ellen White beautifully, mercifully doesn't leave us there, does she, in that powerful passage, because this is where you and I keep and embrace that faith ourselves. What does she go on to say? If you are in communion with Christ, you will place his estimate upon every human being. Every human being. Every human being. I don't want to get political, but I don't know if you're aware, but there are some people who are occupying certain parts of this country. I don't know if you've heard about this. Wall Street, Boston, Bangor. There were 60 proud occupiers in Bangor a few days ago. Well, there was something I was interacting with a guy on Facebook, and he, from what I can tell, is a fairly conservative Christian. And the other day, he was interacting with something I had posted about this issue. And he said, you know what? These parasites who are occupying Wall Street, they just mooch off society and they just take everything they can get and they feel like they're entitled. You know what I said in response? This is not anything that's good about me. I said, you know what? They may be parasites, quote-unquote, but Christ died for them. 
Christ died for them. He died for Barack Obama. He died for George W. Bush. And he values those people every bit as much as he values us. And if we are in communion with Christ, there is no occasion for us to say, ah, those parasites, those scoundrels, those valueless human beings. If we are in communion with Christ, we too will place that value, that estimate. We too will have faith in our fellow human beings. She goes on to say, you will feel for others the same deep love that Christ has felt for you. Then, only then, I think probably many of us just skip that step and we try to win souls to the kingdom through our various ways that don't work because we haven't put the same estimate upon those people that God has. Because she says, then you will be able to win, not drive, attract, not repulse, those for whom he died. You know, these truths of righteousness by faith in the gospel, they are very practical for our lives, aren't they? They're very relevant for how we live. It's not just some dry theory. We say, oh, that's nice. Jesus loves me. He accepts me. He died for me. If we are truly in communion with him, we too will have the same heart that he has. I can tell you, friends, I'm not there. My dad confessed that last night about himself. I'm not there, but you know, if I'm going to embrace the picture that God has of me, I believe I'll be there by his grace, by his confidence. Let's look at one more passage because this is one of the most startling vignettes into the heart of Jesus. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew Matthew chapter 26. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called what? Gethsemane, the olive press. And said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Wish we could linger longer in this story. But I just encourage you, especially read this story from the, the book Desire of Ages. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? You know, you and I have read this probably over and over and over again. And if you're anything like me, I'm just being honest with you, sometimes these stories become so rote that I think they're lifeless. There's a reason, I think, that's probably one of the reasons why Ellen White encourages us to spend a thoughtful hour contemplating, allowing our imaginations to run over the closing scenes, because we need to embrace the picture that has for too long become too familiar to us. But can you hear the heart of Jesus saying, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch with me for one hour? 
it came, it came as a sudden and very poignant realization that these disciples had the opportunity to do what no other human beings have ever done, and that is to minister to God. They had an opportunity to minister and to lift up God, to encourage him. And we're told in the book of Luke that an angel had to come down and strengthen him, and because the implication is he would die if otherwise they did not do that. So he's at his end. And if the disciples had been able to stay and pray with him, it would have encouraged his heart. You know, we think so much about where is God when we're hurting, but where are we when God is hurting? Where are we when God is hurting? We're going to talk about that, I think, a little bit on Sunday as well. But where are we when God is hurting? He says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus didn't have a word of rebuke for them, even at this very hour, did he? He said, just stay here and watch with me. He was still displaying confidence and belief and faith in them. Again, a second time he went away and answered and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now notice what Matthew records. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas one of the twelve, with a great multitude and swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend. But Jesus said to him, friend. God only knows what you and I would have said. We probably would have said anything but friend. We would have tried to think of the most deplorable title to give Judas that we could think of. But he says, friend. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was up to for a long time, didn't he? Just a few nights before, he said, the one who dips his bread in with me, he's going to betray me. And yet, to the very end, Jesus was saying, friend, 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 friend. He doesn't accuse him either, does he? He asks a question so as not to point his finger. He just says, why have you come here? Still giving Judas the opportunity to do a little self-reflection. Friend, why have you come here? Why have you come here? To the very end. To the very end. Notice these last two quotations here in your handout. Ellen White says, what constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. That's the faith of Jesus. She goes on to say, he was treated as we deserve to be treated. 
as we continuously deserve to be treated, not as we deserved, deserved to be treated in the past, you and I still deserve to be treated that way, don't we? Amen. We still deserve that. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. This whole paragraph explains to us the faith of Jesus. And it's that faith that took him to the cross because the first seven words were the faith of Jesus is the cross. That's what the faith of Jesus is. This last quotation here, a little longer one, but it's from the pen of A.T. Jones. Stick with it. I know it's a little hot and we've been here for a while, but notice you have been and you are thankful that you have confidence in God. This is well, for it is a great thing to have doubt and uncertainty removed and confidence in God established in the mind and heart. It is therefore a thing really to be thankful for that you have confidence in God. Amen? Amen. Yet there is a greater thing than this to be thankful for, and that is that God has confidence in you. Say, I'm not... I'm not worthy of that. Praise the Lord. The moment you think you're worthy is the moment you get in hot water. Right? Indeed, it is God's confidence in us that is all the ground of our confidence in him. Considered solely upon the merit of the question, it is indeed a very little thing that we should have confidence in us. So we can't even boast of our faith because what big deal is that? The bigger deal is that God loves me and that he has confidence in me. So if I have the opportunity to sing of my love for God or his love for me, which is the bigger deal? His love for me. Well, it is a thing great beyond all comparison that that he should have confidence in us. Just think what we were. A people laden with iniquity, alienated from God, and enemies in our minds by wicked works. Yet when we were all this, God deliberately invested in us all that he had. Song of Solomon says that a man would sell all the wealth of his house for love. That's a picture of God. He deliberately invested in us all that he had, the great price of his dear son, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of God. This is a marvelous display of confidence. He had such confidence in us that he would invest in us, aliens and enemies, all that he had and all that he has, even himself, expecting that his confidence in us would destroy the alienation, break down the enmity, and win us the confidence in him. And this fairly reckless confidence in us did actually win us from alienation and enmity to confidence in him. This is the only thing only thing that ever did or that ever could so win us. Amen. Thus, his confidence in us is all the ground of our confidence in him. And thus it is established and illustrated the divine principle that confidence does what? Begets confidence. Yea, that confidence to the extent of what seems recklessness will beget confidence even to what seems recklessness for no person can fairly and seriously contemplate the marvelous confidence that God has shown in us without being one to a confidence in God that is a perfect abandon of trust, a trust that holds firm instead through every vicissitude, fire, flood, suffering, persecution, death itself, and this world can possibly know that this world can possibly know. Gives you a little perspective on the great sacrifice of Mary when the disciples 
rebuked her and said, Why this waste? Why this waste? What reckless acts has she done? And Jesus says she has done a good work. She has done a good work. And her story will be shared wherever the gospel is preached. Because it was a picture of the quote-unquote waste and recklessness of the faith of Jesus. There's a young man. Some of you go to my church in Bangor. You know this young man. So I share... And I share his little testimony openly because I had him share it at our church. But you know, one of the, after the, one of the first Sabbaths that I was preaching in Bangor, I preached a sermon similar to this concept. And this young man, Philip, he came up to me and he said, you know, Pastor, there's something in your sermon that really, really connected with me. And Philip is what, 20, 21 years old, I think? You have to understand a little bit about Philip. He's been in, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, at least a dozen foster homes. And he goes to Job Corps, working towards becoming a welder. So he said, you know, Pastor, you said something in your sermon that I never understood before, but it connected with me. I said, well, what was that, Philip? He said, you know, you said something about the way God sees us. He says, you know, many people when they're driving down the road, they're driving down the road, they may see something on the side of the road like an old car, an old tractor, an old lawnmower. And most people drive by it and they say, that stuff's junk. There's no use for that stuff. Just throw it out, keep on driving. He said, you know, when I see something like that on the side of the road, I look at it, And I realize what it can become with just a little tinkering here, a new part there, a little work here. He said, and for the first time, I understood how God looks at me. I said, wow, Philip, that's powerful. He said, you know, most people, I think, they look at us, and there was a friend of his there who... who, uh, likes to keep company with him. He said, most people look at us and they say, you know what? These guys have nothing going on. These guys aren't educated. They don't talk very well. He said, but God looks at me like I look at that machine. He said, Philip, can you sh- would you be willing to share this to the folk at church in a few weeks? He said, well, I, you know, he's very hesitant. You want me to do it? said, you know, I, I can't talk in front of a group, you know. So I said, no, 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 come on up, share with, share with the group. And so a sermon a few weeks later, I called Philip up and I said, at the end of the sermon, my friend Philip has something to say here. And just three or four minutes, he shared the exact same thing. Understanding for the first time the confidence and the belief and the eyes through which God looks at us. The faith of Jesus is the cross. The value of a soul is Calvary. Father in heaven, we are completely humbled by the way you look at us. The way you speak of us. Have you considered my servant Job? 
have you considered my friend Judas? Lord, we ask that we would allow your view of us to become our view, not just of ourselves, but of others. Because the faith of Jesus is that which we will need to embrace to be among those who are translated. And Lord, we don't want to pursue this, this faith selfishly because, oh, we want to be a part of that group. Lord, we want to, as Sarah did, we want to judge you to be faithful and thus show to the whole universe just how much your heart is full of faith and love. We ask that we would embrace the faith of Jesus because it is only when we do that we can truly proclaim the commandments. We want the law and the gospel. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. We don't deserve any of this. So we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.